when you come across those types of struggle, your expectations will be set appropriately. It'll be what you signed up for sometimes, and you'll be more likely to stick with it and see it through to the end. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we are going to have a powerful conversation with an amazing woman today. Sophie Morrison is the best-selling author of Brain Judo and the host of the Epic Fail Podcast. Her content focuses on how entrepreneurs can turn their weaknesses into strengths and find opportunity and failure. But it is her story that is so fascinating, and I cannot wait to share it with each and every one of you today. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I, you have no idea how excited I am to be on your show. Well, that that is high praise and, and an honor to have you here for sure. So there's so many things we can talk about. We're definitely going to talk about your book and we're going to talk about your podcast. But it is your journey that you have shared with me off air privately that is so powerful. And I want to take the audience through that because there's so much that we can learn and, and take from that. So let's start at the beginning and not at the beginning when you're a little kid, but at the beginning, as you started transitioning into the world you're living in today and some of the powerful things you went through. Um, well, just because you said that, I am going to start from when I was a little kid. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've, I've always been, um, I've always liked breaking rules. This would be a great example of, of me breaking a rule. <laughs> so when I was, you know, maybe five or six, I, was at a hotel and I saw there was a whole bunch of shampoos on a housekeeping cart. And so I was like, okay, well, if those are free, I bet I could sell them. People buy shampoos. So I like shoved them all in my Mickey Mouse backpack and like brought them back to Chicago. And I remember my dad had, he was running a big software company. He had a Rolodex of like everyone who worked literally just like one of those spinny cardboard or, you know, like index card black things with the, yeah, like that was the, his contacts. So I was like, okay, so I'm I'm on my like cord house phone calling people in my dad's company. Like, hi, this is your boss's daughter. Um, Do you want to buy a shampoo for $5? And everyone said yes. And I was, it was amazing. (laughs) And I was like, free inventory. Customers can't say no. This is a great business idea. And the next time my dad brought me to work with him, I was like going around collecting like, you know, $5 a pop for these shampoos. And I showed my dad with this wad of cash. And he was like, where did you get that? And I told him, he was like, that's really, he was like trying not to be proud, but he he was a little proud, but he was like, that's really inappropriate. So he made me go back and like return everyone's money and whatever. But I just always would start these kind of creative entrepreneurial schemes, not see what was inappropriate about them. And then kind of get a little dose of tact (laughs) in the little, little lesson in there. And so um, I guess 
I, I wouldn't have told that story, but just because you told me not to start when I was a little kid, <laughs> I, I, I kind of had to. But I'm glad, um, I'm glad that you did because it sets the table yeah. for a life of marching to the beat of your own drum and, you know, what, and ultimately what that brought you into today in terms of what you're doing. So take us forward. So, you know, you obviously, and I'm sure your dad probably was really proud of the ingenuity you did there, but he had to teach you the lesson. So take us forward as you're getting older, you know, this is a theme for you, right? You're just kind of not really loving the rules of society per se. Take us through as you got into adolescence and a bit older. Yeah. I kind of had this like double life in high school where I was, you know, just, I was like the best kid. Like I've, I was that high school, <laughs> you know, I was like on killing it on debate and I was the school news anchor and on lacrosse and on dance and in all the choral groups and student teaching for freshmen and had an internship and and a job on weekends and had like super high grades and all AP classes. Like I was like a like the golden high school kid. And then at night I I was not sleeping. I would go through these elaborate schemes, sneak out. Sometimes I wouldn't even do anything that exciting when I, I would like go to Denny's and get mac and cheese, but like like by myself. But it was the sneaking out I enjoyed so much. I would just look for little opportunities to like do bad secret things. And then when I graduated high school, I had a great opportunity at Mizzou Journalism School. I went away to that and I kind of quickly found kids who were doing drugs, which I had never tried drugs before. And those drugs slowly got a little... like I started trying worse and worse drugs and more frequently. And then I, I don't know, started to depend on that for the thrilling state change that I was looking for. Like that I was... you know, The sneaking out used to be that for me. And then I kind of started to get that need met with substances. Um, and within... You know, so I got, let's see, I got to school the first week of August and I got arrested for a felony on October 12th. <laughs> so it didn't last long. And shortly thereafter, you know, I, I, everyone was saying, you're going to go to prison for seven years. And really, I think they were trying to scare me straight in hindsight, but I really believed them. And so I was like, there's no point in me even trying. Like I ruined my life. There's nothing left. Like, you know, why don't I just keep doing this? So I, I got even more into drugs after the felony um, charge and ended up overdosing. And I remember thinking that I would never get the chance to tell my parents that I, like, I was in the ambulance and I was like, am I going to die? And the guy would not answer the question. And I was like, oh my God, that's what, that's how you talk to dying people. And I remember like, I re now I remember the most not think like the thing that stands out to me the most is how I wasn't thinking about all the things I'd never get to do or kids I'd never have or anything like that. I just, I was strongly thinking about, oh my God, my parents are not going to know how badly I didn't want this to happen. And that kind of set things into perspective. Like, all right, even if I am going to prison for seven years, this like uh, this life isn't even really mine to give up. Like I have people who care about me so much, and I kind of like I want to say like borrowed their love for me as a reason to keep working on myself until I had that self love and kind of my own motivations. Um, so that was 
that was cool. I mean, Sophie, that that's that's powerful and, and interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, one of the things that that struck me was that a lot of this was, you know, you were just feeding off the energy and that excitement, and that's really what led you into the, into using drugs. And and yet, you know, doing so almost killed you. And, and when you when you did have that overdose and you were in the ambulance, what what drugs were you on? But what were you using at the time? It was a whole lot of stuff. It was <laughs> it was. Uh... There's some PCP in there. There was some cocaine, some meth, some five-hour energy, some cigarettes, um, some acid, some pot. So when I overdosed, I was at a festival in Chicago. Didn't tell my folks I was in town. Um, I just kind of you know, left the hospital, took a shower, got back on the bus to Missouri, went back to school, and kind of start I just started evaluating my choices differently and all the friends that I'd made so far were all like the drugs kids so I really started isolating myself and thinking critically about what was going to be my next move so I finished out the year and called my parents I was like I don't think this is the right environment for me I need to I need to move to Chicago so I was working at two nightclubs at the time their um, back door. So sh- the storefront was shaped kind of like a V. So on one side, so the middle of the V was like the two kitchen doors of the two nightclubs. And so I would walk back and forth between the kitchen. I'd schedule myself at both places and just walk back and forth and work at both at the same time. Wow. And so I could make like double money. <laughs> Everyone was, you know, the bosses weren't there at 3 a.m. And you know, I was, <laughs> I'd keep one, one group of people's credit card tabs in one pocket and then the other and the others, so they wouldn't get mixed up. And it was, I, this is a pretty good little scheme I had going. Um, so that's what I was doing, but it was not conducive with what I, the environment I needed to be in, in order to get back on track with the parts of myself. I love the parts that were, you know, doing, getting really engaged with all of the extracurriculars and really loved giving back to people and learning and being growth oriented and all the parts of myself that I had lost touch with, but I wasn't really sure where to begin. So my parents are both, both have like a million graduate degrees from outstanding schools and everyone, all my friends' parents had. And so my model of success looked like you are either going to follow the rules, go to graduate college, go to get your MBA or your JD or both, and have a successful career. And the second option is you're a bum. And so my mindset was, okay, I've deviated from the graduate degree, straight and narrow kind of path. So I'm going to be a bum. And that was kind of just my limiting belief I had about myself. So I called my parents at the end of my first year of college. And I was like, I need to move back to Chicago. They said, you can do whatever you want. But if you decide to leave school, you need to be 100% financially independent. We're not going to like enable you slacking off, and that also means that you need to you can't you can't live here. Like you can't live in our house. I was like, all right, how hard can it be? But it turns out getting a job when you can't pass a background check and you're on probation and you're 18 and don't have a degree is kind of hard. <laughs> so I got a job at a strip club. And I was supposed to start on this one Tuesday. So I was still working at the nightclubs on the weekends and then taking a bus back and forth eight hours to Chicago, looking for jobs and apartments and stuff like that in between. 
And so I'm on this bus on a Tuesday going to go start my job at a strip club at 9 p.m. that night in Chicago. And I'm just sitting on the bus thinking about how am I, how is this my life right now? How did I get from there to here? And nothing against people who that's what they want to do with their lives. But I was just very sure that is not what I wanted to do with my life. So a few hours into the bus ride, we stop at this rest stop and um, you know just like refuel, go to the bathroom. And I hop on my computer on Wi-Fi and I start going on Craigslist. I'm like, I am going to apply for every single job on here that is not a strip club. Like window washer, attorney, like not qualifying myself. Just I'm going to apply for everything on here. And if anybody calls me back before I need to be there at the strip club, I'm going to take the job. And so I just applied for everything on there. And within minutes, I got a call back from the Chicago Cutco office. And they were like, can you come in at 6.45 today? I was like, I certainly can. So I went in for my Cutco interview um, I'm super jazzed about it. The manager was cool. I'm like cutting rope. They're talking about the job and how it's like all based on how much work you put into it. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is totally up my alley. And I go in at the end where they tell you whether or not you got the job. And there's a sheet about like if you have a felony. And then they say, okay, you're going to start by calling your parents and people that you know, which I couldn't do. And like, oh, do you need a, a car, which I didn't have? And, you know, all, all this other stuff. And I go in and I'm like, all right, I, I got to tell you something. I lied on my acceptance criteria sheet. I do have a felony. I don't have a car. I don't actually have anywhere to stay even tonight. <laughs> and I can't call my parents. I'm using drugs and am not really supposed to go to their house for stuff. And the manager, I guess, saw something in me. And he was like, all right, you're not, you're just going to stop messing around and make good choices. Um, I'm paying for you to go to this conference that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Read this book and you can borrow my car. Here's a list of recs you can call. I'm going to make arrangements for you to stay with my receptionist until you figure... Get on your feet. And I just jumped right in. And I actually left all of my stuff in Missouri. Never went back. Still haven't been back. And went to that conference. It was in an environment around people in the office who were getting up early, exercising, taking care of their minds and bodies, working hard. And they were all my age too. So they were all like 18 to 20 and making really great choices. And they all had this kind of weird make your own path drive that I had. And I'd never really met other people like that. So it kind of gave me what I, earlier when I was talking about the two models of success about you follow the straight and narrow, you get your a million graduate degrees, you, you're successful or you're bummed. This gave me another, I want to say third path, but it, oh, the third path was an infinite amount of other paths. I was like, wow, here are, there's sales, there's entrepreneurship, there's, you know, you don't need to necessarily go to school to be successful. And for a lot of people you do, but for some people that's not for them. And it showed me, it kind of just opened my mind to the way I was thinking about myself, that I don't have the identity of a failure. I, I am still making my identity and I can actively choose that. It's not chosen for me. So as I got to know the people in the sales environment better, I started noticing patterns in the ways that we'd all gotten in trouble and the ways that we were all really strong. 
And so I found four main traits in common as I started to talk to people. And they were high risk tolerance, hunger for variety, disregard for authority, and obsessive thought. And each of those, as I started to research those traits over the next couple of years, I found each of those traits is a neutral tool and can be a weakness. So obsessive thought, when you have really repetitive, anxious thoughts, sometimes those become compulsive behaviors like addiction or even just biting your nails or compulsively checking your phone or thinking really negative, just really negative things all the time that can lead to compulsive behavior, try and quiet those thoughts. But that same obsessive thought when directed positively becomes a very unique and very powerful strength. So people who often have the obsessive thought trait and use it in positive ways are great at cold calling. They're great at um, extreme marathoning and doing things that require a lot of discipline. So bad side of the coin is compulsion. Good side of the coin is discipline. But the trait is obsessive thought. And so that's really how I started creating my book, Brain Judo, which is about how personality traits are like tools. They're all neutral. Personality traits are not good or bad. But the application of the, of the tool and the context is what makes something good or bad. Using a hammer to hurt somebody is bad. Using a hammer to build a house is good. Um, it's not the hammer's fault and a hammer's not good or bad, but there's lots of different contexts and usages for that tool. So it's about finding the right ones. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And there are a million things that we have to unpack. I want to get back to brain judo and that discussion about the neutrality of these particular tendencies and how they could go good or bad, depending on how we're wired in our environment. But I just want to reflect on how remarkable your story was because you had you not pulled out your laptop when you did and sent those emails, your life could be very, very different than it is today. And so that's that was the first thought that I had as you were sharing that story. And the other thought that I had was what a phenomenal opportunity that no bias... You fully laid your cards on the table and this guy at, at Cutco took a chance on you. And so you got a really quick dose immediately of mentorship and an environment with people who had the mindset you needed to be in, which is so important to success. So really fascinating and exciting how those things came together and came together so rapidly for you. So that manager, his name's Grant Paterakis. He That was seven years ago. And that was seven years ago, like this week, actually. And he, to this day, is one of my best friends. I have my phone on Do Not Disturb. As we're talking, I can actually see I'm on the side texts coming in from him on my computer right now about more growth-oriented stuff and book recommendations. And I, yeah, he's really just an outstanding person. He's still with Cutco Vector. And still, I think about every person who walks through those doors, they have no idea what they're in for. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. 
Well said. And we, we've you know, we've certainly had a number of Vector Cutco people who have been on our program. So we're, we're certainly friends of them and know that they do great work for sure. So I, I want to jump back now because the, your book is so fascinating. So Brain Judo, you, and you kind of told us the story as to what was the impetus for writing this, that you were learning about these, you know, you did your research and you found what were these four traits. So we talked about the obsessive thoughts. Take us through again the other three and let's jump into them in a little more detail. Yeah. So again, the four the four main traits are obsessive thought, disregard for authority, hunger for variety, and um, high risk tolerance. So the high risk tolerance is really the one that I identify with the most strongly. There's this whole body of research really led by this, this um, woman named Ellen Sansetter who researched the impact of exposure to different kinds of risk on children who were like under seven. I think, so that's significant. So there's this, this school of thought about Children go through phases like Erickson's stages of development. Under seven, you have this certain level of neuroplasticity where you can learn things. And you, you're the doctor, so feel free to chime in. But <laughs> um, the, <laughs> there's there's this a, a certain level of neuroplasticity under under seven where you can learn things more quickly and things are more likely to become ingrained in your subconscious than after that age for most people. So children under seven, exposure to different types of risk. And there were a few main kinds that she focused on as being really important types of risk to have exposure to. So they were um, high speeds, heights, getting lost, tools were the, the main four that I remember. And you could kind of see how a kid might work those into their environment. So high speeds could be a swing set or playing tag. Getting lost is like hide and go seek. And, you know, heights is more playground stuff tool. You know, you can kind of see the context of where a kid might find those risks in appropriate ways. And she found that kids who did have exposure to those risks were a lot more confident, had a lot more self-awareness and control and had a great social integration. And kids who did not have exposure to those kinds of risks had problems in all those areas had um, a lot of t- a lot of social anxiety and difficulty making choices on their own. And so it's kind of I think a, a lot about in biology about the hygiene hypothesis, which is that when you, uh, yeah, are you sure you didn't graduate college? Okay, so I, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm a big nerd, big nerd. Um, you can I, so that's another thing I talk about in my book that I'll circle back to is ways of taking ownership of your education when you love learning, but maybe the traditional education context isn't your, isn't your thing. So anyway, hygiene hypothesis talks about when you are in an environment that's way too clean when you're a little kid, you don't have enough germs that you're exposed to. It can lead to autoimmune problems later, um, problems with gut health, which has also been shown to be strongly correlated to anxiety and other mental health symptoms based on your gut flora. So anyway, I don't know, I digress. But anyway, so it's it's funny how being exposed to things like bacteria or risk or things that we label as bad are actually really important for healthy development later in life when they're the right kinds of risk or the right kinds of bacteria. So I started wondering 
are there types of risks that adults need exposure to for healthy development? And what are those developmentally appropriate risks? So in my book, I talk about four types of risk that after this is, you know, I don't want to even call it a study because there's, it's so, you know, it's people I had access to and there's no control group or whatever, but just people who I, I surveyed a few hundred people and found that there were four main types of categories of risk that adults actively seek. So spatial risk, task risk, physical risk, and mental risk. So I would I, I call those challenge in the book instead of risk because I think risk is kind of carries a weight of being something that's negative or bad or skewed with a like people even weigh a risk or a reward and so the risk can be the reward so I want to get rid of that attachment to that verbiage and call it challenge rather so spatial challenge might be it's kind of like the getting lost from the children under seven example so traveling being in a new role at a new company, first day of something, doing feeling like you're physically in a space that you're don't that you aren't familiar with yet and trying to get your footing. Task challenge could be learning guitar, learning a new language, doing something you don't know how to do. Physical challenge could be is something with a radical state change. So some people negatively meet that risk with substances, some people positively meet that risk with working out, learning how to do new physical things, training for a marathon, things like that. Uh, mental challenge is... Um, I, I struggled whether to call that mental challenge or emotional challenge because I, I've, I think that people negatively meet that with actively looking for problems to solve and then sometimes creating problems to solve. And people can constructively meet that need by solving, not necessarily solving problems, but finding so finding answers is, I guess, how I prefer to phrase that. So whether it's doing a puzzle or Sudoku, or maybe it's finding something in the world that you want to make better or a search for understanding something. So those are the four main types of risk. I identify very strongly with those, with those traits. And I used to actively seek to meet all four of those in destructive ways. And now that I'm aware of them, I have found really constructive ways to meet all those. I'm actually currently training for a marathon. So that's my... my it's, I, it's actually all four. It's spatial. It's a task. It's very physical. And it's very, 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 very mental. So I'm really enjoying and nervous about that, which I enjoy being nervous. So that's kind of the whole point. Um, the point of the book is it's the book I wish I had at 18. So it's it's very concise. I asked people what's the when do you usually stop reading books and they were like I don't know right around 70 pages. I was like great, I'll make it 70 pages. So it's very short, it's to the point and it's actionable. So there's journaling activities in there. There's examples of if you're feeling this way, here's a context where you can apply that. So under each type of those four risks I laid out in the book, there's exact examples of the types of positive risks you can take. Um, so, so we talked about obsessive thought. We talked about high risk tolerance, disregard for authority. Clearly, I mean, that one resonated. <laughs> Just the, yeah. the five year old story. I mean, that's that's obviously something that's been a theme for you. You you even referred to you know these things as that you these ideas you've had as quote unquote schemes. You know, which would you know connotate that you've kind of wanted to buck. Fuck the norm there. So, 
Yeah, and and I'm excited to dig into this one in particular because I think a lot of people who are in the entrepreneurial space and in the in the business space, this is probably the one that I would guess that that flags for many many of them who have always kind of wanted to do things their way and not just because society tells us to do something. Yeah, so I think when you're when you're very naive, I don't even want to say an age, but when usually when you're younger but always when you're very naive and you have a high risk or you have a disregard for authority it comes out in kind of innocent well-meaning ways like my selling shampoos example i i really didn't mean to pressure people or be inappropriate i just it seemed like a logically good idea i was like oh they'll probably say yes because they work for my dad it didn't occur to me that i'd be making them uncomfortable um and so when you they so often it starts out in very well-meaning ways and as you get more pushback, you start to train yourself to think this, okay, when I do things that feel like this, that is something that is breaking a rule and I get in trouble. And you kind of start to associate meeting your disregard for authority needs with things that get you in trouble. And so you start to look at the, okay, what is the whole category of things that get me in trouble? Because I know I like that th- those things. So when someone tells you not to do something, you start to actively associate it with, okay, that gives me this feeling. And so it starts to, for most people, make you kind of go off the, off the straight and narrow a little bit and, and get more of a... And, and actively seek opportunities to break rules. And so I think that it's about in our adult lives training ourselves to see opportunities to deviate from the norm in ways that aren't destructive. If that does that make sense so far? I can't really tell if that was cogent. <laughs> it was it was, but take us through perhaps a tangible example of what that might yeah. look like. I think the it comes down to the question that you ask yourself when you're looking for an opportunity to disregard authority. So the destructive i'll i'll get more specific but just to kind of lay the the framework for what i'm about to dive into the destructive ways of breaking rules typically the question that people ask is it's not even so much as a question it's more of you told me not to do this and therefore i'm going to do it the question that people ask when they're using that trait constructively is often well, what are options we haven't considered? Or I hear what you're saying, but I don't necessarily want to accept that as fact yet. So it's more of an exploration than a defiance. Does that make sense so far? Perfect sense, yes. Yeah, and and they tend to meet that need in the same way. So um, when I'm at the Whole Foods checkout counter and the line's really, really long and I only have, you know... 30 things, <laughs> and I, you know, whatever, whatever it is, there's no rule saying I can't pay at customer service. I'm not hurting anybody, but it's, um, you know, maybe there's no line over there. The customer service person's just like texting and Instagramming and Snapchatting, whatever. And I just want to go pay over there. It's more efficient. Anyone could do it, not taking anything from anybody, but I just don't. I don't subscribe to the idea that the only place to pay is the checkout counter. So that is something I enjoy doing. (laughs) 
So um, I don't know if that's the best example, but I would say even, you know what, going back to what I said about that the two models of success were the straight and narrow or being a bum and then saying, well, maybe there's a third or infinite other options here of models of success. That's a disregard for authority. That's not, that's not saying I am going to break this rule to just test the limits for its own sake. It's saying I'm going to do a probe here and see what else is maybe being missed. And that I think is how innovation happens. And I think that's oftentimes why people who are really brilliant innovators have also had their fair share of brushes with breaking rules in more destructive ways. What I'm hearing you really makes me think of the book, The Third Door by Alex Banian, and that it's not so much that you're just blatantly for the sake of being defiant, being defiant. It's really questioning the status quo and being creative in finding an alternative solution that most people have not thought of or would not think of. Yes. But those two behaviors, those two sets of behaviors can often fill the same need. So if you're filling the need with being defiant for its own sake, which I have to say, it feels it's pretty fun. It feels great. When, when I go to Benihana and they're like, don't touch it, it's hot. I'm like, oh, why'd you have to go and say that? <laughs> but um, <laughs> but if, you're, if you're actively meeting that need by breaking rules, you have, you know, even in adults, I find it's like, it tends to be more subtle ways. Like they slip out, they're very healthy and very health conscious, and have a very health conscious persona but secretly they like to slip outside at night and have a cigarette, not because they like cigarettes, but because it just gives them that feeling of defiance to hold on. Whatever, whatever level your defiance is happening at, if it's not serving you and you still want to meet that need about yourself, you have such a rare strength you're not harnessing. So I would say actively ask yourself, what are the opportunities other people are overlooking? I'm telling you, it's going to meet the same need and it's going to feel so much better and if you want to have like, if you enjoy the feeling of keeping it a secret, you can still be creative and keep it a secret. You don't, <laughs> you know, you don't have to make it blend. If you like having that kind of divided identity, like a part of your identity that's just for you, I, I you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I, this is part of my identity I'm about to share that not a lot of people know, but I am super into wildflowers. I, as now we thought I was going to say, but no. <laughs> I, it's something that I don't talk about because I like holding on to it as something secret that I do because it's a whole thing. I make it like a whole thing. So there's this one forest preserve, and I will usually text people and be like, hey, I'm, I'm off the grid for the day. So don't be scared. I'm not, you know, I'm probably not dead. And I'll leave my, my phone off in the car and I, go deep into this forest preserve. I have no idea how much time's going by. And I sometimes I'll bring my pamphlet and sometimes I do it from memory. And I just engage with my environment that I know I'm not going to see anybody. Nobody knows where I am. I'm sneaking out, right? The same sneaking out from when I was growing up. The same feeling of getting lost. The same spatial challenge. The task challenge about, am I going to you know, be able to identify these flowers. And, you know, I, it's something feels kind of dangerous about not having my phone with me. Like, wow, what if I twist my ankle? I'm going to have to crawl out of here. And it's just, it feels adventurous and it makes my heart beat faster. And when I'm, you know, sometimes I check out books about wildflowers from the library and I'll read about them and it feels kind of, you know, dirty because 
flowers grow in dirt. But I, <laughs> you know, it feels kind of dirty because I'm like, I know I'm going to, you know, memorize these flowers and go look for them later. And no one knows that I do this and it's kind of dorky. And I don't know, I, I'm, this is really the first time I'm publicly talking about it. So I feel kind of even a little excited talking about it right now. But yeah, that's what I mean. I'm not hurting anybody. It's arguably healthy. So it's about, you don't have to give up those parts of yourself. You just have to know that's something you need. Don't feel ashamed of it. Don't feel like I need to stop taking risks. I need to stop breaking rules. I'm such a bad blah, blah, blah. No, you just need to find better context to use those tendencies. So most people, like I'll call them the like no, the muggles, the entrepreneurial muggles. So they're not, you know, they're not, they don't have these tendencies. They're really, really happy or they think they're really happy with following rules and maybe don't feel that creative. Most people choose what they're going to do by figuring out what they're good at. So there's like one or two things they're good at. Maybe they're really good at science and they're good at math and they decide they want to become a surgeon and they're not really good at other things. And therefore they don't really enjoy other things because they don't enjoy doing things they're not good at. And that is a great system for most people. And then there's the entrepreneurial weirdos like me and like I believe many of you who are good at so many things that you think... And when you see the people around you deciding what to do based on what they're good at, you think, okay, I'm good at all these things. Therefore, I should be doing all these things. There's something frustrating about watching someone do something you know you can do better and you just want to go in and just do it yourself. It makes it hard to delegate. It makes it hard to decide what to do. Um, I still kind of haven't fully given up on my dream of going to law school. And I thought, you know what? Screw it. I can go to law school right now. So I've been auditing law school classes and just, you know, on Thursday nights, just going, watching law school classes for free learning. And it's not towards anything, but I enjoy it. And I'm getting to meet that need without anyone having to give me permission to do that. So, I mean, I have to ask, but you know what I mean? I don't have to apply. So. I was in one of, <laughs> oh my God. So I was in one of the law school classes and I saw one of the first year students doing something on in like a practicum example that was just so off and frustrating to watch that I raised my hand. I was like, I'm sorry, can I, can I try this? They were like, yeah. And so I jumped in and I was like, I can do this better. I can, <laughs> I'm like interrupting the law student and like and getting involved in the practicum. And at the end, the professor was like, so great that you wanted to be engaged. Maybe don't do that again. Um, (laughs) But anyway, there's something frustrating about watching someone do something you know you can do better that you feel pulled to have to try and do it yourself. And I think where a lot of entrepreneurs can begin who are multi-talented is by asking, "What what would I do if I wasn't good at it? So rather than I'm doing it because I love it or I'm doing it because I'm good at it, which is many, many things and the way that many other people decide what they're going to do, asking yourself, if I was bad at this, would I still love doing it? And that's a good way to narrow down to one or two things that you really want to do. The problem with hunger for variety when it's used destructively is you never get anything done. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, Grant Paterakis, as he would explain to me when I would really have issues with my divided focus. He would say, it's like you're getting in line for a roller coaster at Six Flags. You're waiting in line, you're putting in the work. And as soon as it's your turn to get on the ride, 
you switch lines and you never get to enjoy the roller coaster. You just get in line and you wait and you, you put in the work, the grunt work to get something going. And then you never, you never see it to see it through to fruition. So that's really the problem with hunger for variety. But it can be a really great thing when, as Jeff Hoffman puts it, um, you're info sponging. When you're kind of curious and open-minded and always able to learn little pieces about lots of different things and then connect the dots on them later in really innovative ways. So it's important to hold on to your hunger for variety and also understand how to contain it and not get FOMO, not think, oh, you know, I have all these five really good ideas that are all entrepreneurial and I could see any one of them being really successful. And what if, what if this idea number one is the new Uber and number two doesn't work out and number three is the new Facebook and I just got to try all of them because I don't know which, what's going to stick. And I, it's a, a thought of a scarcity mentality I find myself falling into sometimes. But I got to try all these ideas because I don't know which one's going to be the most successful. So the way that I, I remove my fear bias and making that choice is I say, let's assume none of them are going to be successful. Which one will I be most glad I did? And that I think also helps because it sets your expectations. Every idea has this, has the, it's like it's how it's easier to stay awake with jet lag when you first arrive at the place you're going because you're adrenaline, you're excited, you're exploring a new place. And you don't, I don't really get tired when I go, when I get off the plane in like Thailand because I'm, even if I haven't slept in 30 hours or whatever and it's 2 a.m. my time, I am so excited to be exploring this new place. But when I'm coming back to Chicago and I'm jumping into my day-to-day routine and I've gotten sleep, but maybe only four hours or whatever, I'm just exhausted and don't want to do it. So it's the same with any new expedition in, in business or life. The novelty of something can make you think you're less that there's less challenge than there is. And as soon as the novelty starts to wear off and you're jumping into your day-to-day routine and you're a little tired or you encounter a challenge, it's kind of like the coming home jet lag where you're like, oh, I feel this now. And so if you're asking yourself, which thing do I want to struggle... Of course, everyone wants to be successful with anything. But when you ask yourself, what's the, what do I want to struggle with? What's the pain that I'm okay with or excited about enduring? When you come across those types of struggle... Your expectations will be set appropriately. It'll be what you signed up for sometimes. And you'll be more likely to stick with it and see it through to the end. So so in a nutshell, ask yourself, if I were not going to be successful with any of these things, if I were going to struggle with all these things, which one would I want to do that with? That's really great. It's a really neat exercise that people can walk through. And as I'm reflecting on everything that you've shared, Sophie, as it relates to brain judo, you've done a really beautiful job of taking these different dimensions, which I know many people in the entrepreneurial space identify with, and pointing out that it's just simply the way that we frame them, that some of these things, you know, society could view them as problematic or, you know, bucking authority. But really, you've pointed out that. For many people, it's being able to channel 
those energies into strengths that make it work for them and to have a more meaningful life and, and contribute to society in a really great way. So I'm really grateful that you shared all that with us today. Uh, as we're running towards the end here, I did want to take just a couple minutes and talk about the Epic Fail podcast and what it's about and where people can learn about that. Yeah, Epic Fail is about people who have found success by leveraging their failures rather than in spite of them. So when people say overcoming failure, that to me sounds like... this. Is, so I heard a speaker named Amy Mullins. She is an athlete and model and she has prosthetic legs. And she people would always say, you're so good at overcoming things. And she said that when she heard overcoming, she heard getting around this inconvenient obstacle of challenge just to get back to where you would have been if you hadn't encountered that challenge. When really any challenge is an opportunity to use it as a springboard. And that resonated with me so strongly. I actually heard her speak um, right after my felony while I was awaiting my trial. I was when I was like, okay, I got to really focus and get my act together. I was like starting to go to talks and read books. And that's when I heard her speak. And so that idea just kind of sat somewhat dormant in the back of my mind. And I started noticing recently, as I've gotten to know more people in the entrepreneurial space, how many beautiful ideas, businesses, and lives have stemmed from failure and accidents and coincidences. And I started thinking about a lot. Okay. And a lot of them were from rock bottoms as well. And I started wondering, is there a way that you can figure out how to leverage the opportunities of failure without having to hit those rock bottoms first? And so on Epic Fail, I I certainly don't have the answer to that, but I'm really curious. I started interviewing people just kind of on my own. like I would just reach out to them and ask. And I thought, this is something that's valuable for everybody to hear. So I'm just going to record my conversations with these people, asking them those questions. And other people can hear it too and, and maybe find some answers. So I interview people who have failed in small ways, large ways, whatever is significant to them and found opportunity in that failure. And then we try to really dive in on what is it about the way you handled that failure that turned it into an opportunity? How do you actively seek those opportunities and train yourself to notice them? So that's what Epic Fail is. And I'm really enjoying it a lot. Outstanding. Sophie, we're going to find out where people can get to Epic Fail and get your book in just a minute. But as you know, at the end, I love to wrap up every episode by asking my guest a single question. And that is, what is your biggest helping? The one single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? The biggest thing I want people to walk away with today is that there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong. Might be wrong with stuff you do, but there's nothing wrong with you. Everything about you is an opportunity to be a strength. And it's all about finding the right context and the right set of habits and something that just lights your heart on fire that you can apply all those personality traits to. So don't you know, get any lim- limiting beliefs or negative thoughts about yourself. If you don't like something you're doing, find something better to be doing, but don't change yourself. 
So if you have any of those traits we talked about, you have other traits I missed, I'd love to hear. I'd love to expand my research and my thoughts about this. But yeah, every personality trait is a neutral tool. Hammers aren't good or bad. Personality traits aren't good or bad. It's all about the application, the context, and how you're using the parts of yourself. So nothing wrong with you. Opportunities for strengths. Find the right context. That's my biggest helping. Perfect. Sophie, where can people find you? Um, I'm most accessible via my Instagram, The Gratitude Gal. And on my website, it's sophiemorrison.com. You just fill out. There's like a contact me spot on that. If you have any thoughts you want to share, Brain Judo is available on Amazon. I know the author really well. I can get you a signed copy if you want one. (laughs) Reach out to me. And Epic Fail is available on like most podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, SoundCloud. I think, I don't know, the Apple Podcasts app on your phone. I think that's iTunes, but it's on there too. So yeah, love to hear anyone's thoughts. Like I said, I'm always looking to expand my thoughts on this, especially if you disagree with anything I said, I'd be interested to hear about that most of all. I love that. And for those of you who are behind the wheel or at the gym, we've got you covered. Everything Sophie Morrison will be available on the show notes for this episode at thedailyhelping.com, as well as in the Daily Helping app. Well, Sophie, I have loved our discussion. I knew it was going to be fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And thanks to each and every one of you as well who tuned in to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly... Go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping, because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs>